ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Welcome to Africa Forward, a podcast from Africa 50 produced by FP Studios. This series is dedicated to looking at how countries in Africa are building a new future for the continent by bolstering its infrastructure. I'm Aisha Sassay. And I'm Carol Pino. In this episode, we're going to focus on transportation and trade. Later on in the program, I'll lead a roundtable discussion looking at how increasing mobility throughout Africa is keeping money inside the continent and helping it grow. But first, a celebration. In March of 2018, leaders from across Africa gathered in Kigali, Rwanda for an historic event, the signing of a massive African free trade agreement that made Africa one of the largest trade blocs in the world. Rwandan President Paul Kagame spoke. This agreement is about trade in goods and services. These are the kinds of complex products that you drive high-income economies. Today, nearly every single African country is part of the African Continental Free Trade Area, known as the AFCFTA. You're going to hear those initials a bunch later on. That's AFCFTA. As the BBC explained, African leaders hope the agreement will lead to big changes. It means all countries agree to try and trade more with each other, reducing barriers like tariffs. So why are they doing it? Well, African countries don't trade with each other that much. In Europe, 70% of trade happens within the continent. In Asia, it's just over half. But in Africa, just 16% of trade is between African countries. A free trade area is designed to boost that number, creating jobs and opportunities. The next step has been to infuse capital into the system to really get projects off the ground. Leading the way has been the African Development Bank. In 2019, its president, Dr. Akinwumi Adesina, told the World Economic Forum how the bank rolled out a billion dollars in trade finance to help small and medium enterprises. Additionally, the bank has invested more than $9.5 billion in regional infrastructure in places like ports, airports, and highways. Adesina envisions an Africa where increased access to capital and better infrastructure are unlocking potential across the continent. You know, when people look at Africa, think of 
the population. Think of the middle class. Think of the huge opportunities to invest across borders, not just limited by the boundaries of borders. And look at the opportunities for you to be able to invest in a continent with a population that will be the same size of China and India by the last 2050, rapid middle class, a continent that's striving with young people with lots of things to do. And we think that next China after China is going to be Africa. This is exactly what the continental free trade area is. Almost $3 trillion of combined GDP. That's the market to focus on. And I think that if we can deal with those issues of access to finance, promote trade finance, and also invest in infrastructure, I think we'll be able to help Africa to double a lot of the intra-regional trade that it's doing right now. One of the main goals of the agreement is to ease the movement of goods from production areas directly to the nearest ports or commercial centers, regardless of borders. This efficiency saves time and money, says Benedicto Rama, president of Frexim Bank. It eases the flow of goods all across the uh, land borders, makes it easier also that when we build railways across many borders, people don't have to worry how you manage the transit issues to make those projects uh, work better. We're going to hear more from Professor Orama a little later in our roundtable discussion. But first, creating the framework for free trade is only the first step in realising the potential of the AFCFTA. The next part is implementing the agreement. Creating the actual infrastructure to move goods and people between countries will greatly enhance the agreement's success. The good news is that this is already starting to happen throughout Africa. Recent projects like a new airport terminal in Guinea, or a toll road in Nigeria, or a port in Mozambique, are all speeding the flow of commerce across the continent. Perhaps one of the best examples of how new infrastructure can ease the flow of people and goods is the Senegambia Bridge, which crosses the Gambia River and smooths the connection between Senegal and the Gambia, two countries in West Africa. The bridge is a major feature of a planned Transgambia Highway, which is estimated will slash in half the cost of transporting freight once completed. The Senegambia Bridge took four years to construct at a cost of over $92 million, most of which was secured through a grant through the African Development Bank. It was truly an international effort. The construction was handled through a joint venture between the Spanish company Isolux Corsan and the Senegalese firm Areski. Reporter Laura Rosbrow-Tellum has more details. It's a sunny New Year's Day in the Gambia, a small West African nation on the Atlantic coast, surrounded by the country of Senegal. Sam Sadio, a Senegalese PhD student in African studies, has a big smile on his face. He's doing something pretty mundane, driving his car across a bridge. But the 1.2-mile span he's crossing, known as the Senegambia Bridge, is anything but conventional. It's been a life-changer for him. Sadio is from Senegal's Casamance region, south of the Gambia. He says before the bridge, crossing the Gambia River on his way to Dakar, Senegal's capital, was quite an ordeal. I still remember back in the 2007, when I just graduated from high school, it was 11 in the morning. Then we crossed the ferry at 5 p.m. So it was almost the whole day along over there, just waiting for our turn to come and cross. 
and getting back could be even worse. Sometimes he had to come the night before to secure his spot on the ferry, but still. We stay there from 7.45 to midday, like 12 p.m., before we can cross. So it was very difficult, you know, just to cross the ferry at that time. Very, very, very difficult. But now, all that's in the past. Today, Sam is cruising along and marvels at how crossing the river, a feat that used to take most of the day, now takes less time to complete than a song on the radio. Driving over the bridge is so awesome, it's so good. It will take you like 1 minute and 45 seconds to cross the bridge and go on the other side of the country. The Senegambia Bridge is intended to reflect the bonds of friendship between the two countries. Since the opening of the bridge at the start of 2019 by Gambia's president, Adama Baro, and Senegal's president, Macky Sall, the bridge has impacted livelihoods and opened economic opportunities for tens of thousands of people like Sam who use the bridge. This is what got the African Development Bank interested in the project, says Mike Salawu, who leads the Infrastructure Partnerships Division at the bank. Salawu was involved in the bridge's feasibility study. This was one of the projects also identified as being a critical one on the corridor by seeing a trans-African highway moving from Cairo all the way to Morocco, coming down to Senegal, going to Lagos, to make it seamless. So that was the concept, a continuous and interconnected highway that would facilitate movement of people and trade across the continent. It's actually something people have been dreaming about for decades, says Solomon Quainor, a vice president with responsibility for infrastructure at the African Development Bank. It's a project that has been, you know, in the wish list, uh, in the desirable list for a long time. Uh, Some people might say, you know, even up to 40 years. In this case, money was not actually the problem. The African Development Bank supported the Gambia and Senegal to finance the bridge project. In fact, the name, the Senegambia Bridge, is a little bit of a misnomer, since the bridge doesn't actually span a border between the two countries. It crosses the Gambia River within Gambia. But because this area is bordered on three sides by Senegal, the Senegalese benefit a lot from the bridge. It creates a direct driving route from the north of the country down to southern Senegal. However, as part of the Trans-Gambia Road Transport Corridor, this bridge is an important economic and strategic link connecting the northern and southern parts of both the Gambia and Senegal, and by extension, West African countries stretching from Dakar to Lagos. And now that the bridge is open, more money has gone to increasing transportation infrastructure. In phase two of the project, hundreds of millions of dollars in financing sourced from the African Development Bank, the U.S. government, and the European Investment Bank have gone toward constructing more than 100 miles of paved road in southern Senegal bordering the Gambia. It's an example of one project building on another. The bridge opens up the region to more trade and movement of goods, which in turn opens up more traffic and integration between countries in the region. There's also hope that this new highway will reduce the custom control points and smooth the route between Dakar and Lagos on Trans-African Highway 7. Having that open access to the bridge as the government of Senegal was very important because this is a transport corridor that actually uh, links up significant economic activity. Like many other infrastructure projects, the bridge served as a unifier, bringing people together and building closer relationships. Even in the building of the bridge, the two countries had different visions that needed to be reconciled, says Ahmadou Mbai, an economics professor at Sheikh Anta Diop University in Senegal and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. You had a lot of issues between the two countries. 
Now, Macky Sall and President Adam Abaro very close to one another. And this has very much facilitated the building. The political will and support from the two presidents enabled this project to come to fruition. The African Development Bank also helped set up something called a joint secretariat of officials from both the Gambia and Senegal. You know, that's the first point of defense on any potential issues. Again, this is Solomon Quinor from the African Development Bank. He says this joint secretariat is designed to manage bridge concerns between both countries. It creates a good mechanism for continued discussions between both parties. There have been some, you know, road expansions around both sides of the bridge, uh, not just within Gambia, but also within Senegal. All of that planning uh, requires coordination. A lot of planning went into the Senegambia Bridge. The African Development Bank actually started the bridge feasibility study back in 2004, and they were in talks with both countries for years. Construction finally began in 2015, and then on January 21st, 2019, the bridge finally opened. Gambian President Adama Barrow and Senegalese President Maki Sall attended the opening ceremony. Sall pointed out how the bridge was truly a bilateral achievement. I stand before you on behalf of your sisters and brothers from Senegal to pay tribute for the great achievement we made together. World-renowned Senegalese musician Yusu Ndour even played at the event. The bridge is presently closed because of COVID-19. Still, despite these hurdles, the bridge will undoubtedly help trade in the corridor. Though the pandemic has hampered the economy, Professor Mbai says he's seen vast improvement in trade and the movement of goods. You can see people and goods uh, traveling back and forth uh, much easier, uh, which is a good news for the Gambia, which is also good news for Senegal, because it's making uh, the economy uh, much better. The Senegambia Bridge is also potentially enabling other infrastructure projects in the Gambia. Using a financial tool called asset recycling, Gambia now has an attractive lure to entice outside investors and develop public-private partnerships, says Solomon Quinor from the African Development Bank. It's another way of bringing investors who want to come into brownfield assets, not greenfield assets. Uh, and, and it's also another way of releasing capital for governments to recycle into you know, other projects that have the potential to be PPPs. In other words, outside investors could buy equity in the bridge, and the Gambian government could use this money to invest in other infrastructure projects. It's an exciting concept for Gambians who for years have struggled to get major projects funded, and now are anxious to build upon the success of the bridge. For Africa Forward, I'm Laura Rostrautellum. Projects like the Senegambia Bridge offer hope. The bridge itself has been transformational, but more needs to be done to deliver on the promise of a continuous highway throughout Africa. The financing needs are significant and require strong public-private collaboration, says Alan Ebobise, CEO of Africa 50. The investment requirements in Africa, in infrastructure space, are huge. Uh, I think uh, the African Development Bank estimated the investment requirement in infrastructure space at between $130 billion a year to $170 billion a year. 
So we just heard a story about the great potential improved infrastructure can bring to Africa as a whole. How can countries maximize the potential of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement? How can countries close that gap of what's being currently spent on infrastructure versus what needs to be spent? And how can this be done in a way that's not just good for the public who needs these resources, but also for investors who can feel good not only about improving the lives of Africans, but also come away with comfortable profits? These are just some of the questions we'll pose to our expert roundtable. My guests include Benedicta Roma, president of the African Export-Import Bank, or Africsim Bank. Dr. Roma has a Ph.D. in agricultural economics and for years has championed creating an integrated market across the continent. Also joining us is Juliet Anama. She's the chairwoman of Jumia Nigeria and head of institutional affairs for Jumia Group. Jumia has been an innovator in African e-commerce and logistics. Its platform boasts a billion annual visits. The company recently opened its logistics platform to third-party sellers to ease the flow of intra-African trade throughout the continent. Rounding out our panel is Alan Kilevuka, the CEO of Kenya Airways. The airline has begun an effort to further increase its flights within Africa and abroad as part of its strategic plan to play a key role in connecting businesses and opportunities across the continent and beyond. Welcome, everyone. We'll start with Professor Aroma. It seems like every week I'm hearing about a new transport infrastructure project, new roads, rail lines, airports, ports, and more. Can you give us a picture of just how much transport infrastructure has changed over the past 20 years? What did it look like before and what does it look like now? Um, In the 1980s, the continent was undergoing great challenges. Those challenges in terms of the death crisis created the lost decade. The immediate impact on it was a halt in, on investments in infrastructure. So we started seeing a decay in ports, in airports, in roads, in rail. But what has happened since early 2000 was the advent of China. When China came, they began to provide the financing using different mechanisms. That is why today you see there are few countries that can point to any new road, any new airport, any new uh, railway that will not point to China for the source of funding. But another thing that has happened and which is less talked about, um, the way investors smartly tried to bring the concepts they used to develop infrastructure in their own countries, PPP, public-private partnership projects. There is now opportunity for private infrastructure investors to come in. But we have a very important thing. 20, 30 years ago, you didn't have Africa 50. You didn't have a Flexing Bank. You didn't have Africa Finance Corporation. Today, you have these institutions. And we are also beginning to see them as prime developers of infrastructure projects in Africa. You know, the problem we have in Africa is Africa's problem. It is only Africans that can deal with it with a patriotic zeal to be able to solve the problem. Any other person coming in, okay, they will bring some value, but they have other things in their mind. African institutions must be the drivers of this development because what they're able to do will be crucial 
in the way Africa moves. Because the younger Africans, they are hungry to see things change. But things cannot change unless you have control of the money that will make those things change. So Africans have to rise and know that the development of infrastructure must be under their control. If you are just receiving, uh, because you need the road, well, you take anything that comes just to get that road. But the cost of that road may be too high in other ways. Juliet, if you look at the Continental Free Trade Agreement, at the push for intra-African trade, all of this is really dependent on transport infrastructure, isn't it? Yeah. AFCFTA is one of the pivotal projects for Africa in terms of facilitating intra-African trade, creating opportunities for Africans on the continent. And I can give an example of Jumia and what we've done in transport. So when we started, we realized that we wouldn't have a single logistics partner who could cover the length and breadth of all the countries where we operate. So it could go from the first mile to the last mile. So what we decided to do was to invest in technology that drives logistics. And then we integrated several third-party logistics players into our network. Because Africa, surprisingly, when it comes to distribution infrastructure, which is part of transport, we don't lack for assets there. We just didn't have people who had the means to integrate it in a manner that creates real value for consumers and sellers alike. So I just use Jumia as a microcosm of the way we need to think about infrastructure in Africa. We should really be thinking about it the way Dwight Eisenhower thought about it in the U.S. many years ago, when he said, look, how do you integrate the entire country? What is the multimodal infrastructure network that you require to link the whole United States? And that's where you create so much, much more value per mile of infrastructure that is invested. And that's where we need to be thinking also from an African perspective. You know, Juliet, that, that's really brilliant because so often Africa is looked at by outsiders as an empty slate. And the point that everything is there It's just connecting it. It's working with it. And that there's a lot more that has already been done by Africans than is realized from outsiders. Alan, I want to get to this issue with agriculture and especially perishable agriculture, the kinds of things like cut flowers. Kenya has been exceptional on that. I believe for a long time, uh, Marks and Spencer in the UK, you could not buy a rose that did not come from Kenya. Airlines were crucial in that. Can you talk about how airlines have enabled Kenya to have this platform to be able to compete in perishable goods? Thank you. And in fact, when we talk about Kenyan Airways, we think of ourselves and we are an African carrier, not just a Kenyan carrier. So our job is to interconnect Africa to the world and the world to Africa. Every year we transport about 70,000 tons of cargo Uh, When you talk about uh, horticulture, you really have to think about the people it's impacting in Africa, because we have a wide range of um, farmers who consolidate their cargo and then have to transport it uh, to mainly Europe and some to the U.S. You know, the number is anything upwards of 300,000 in terms of farmers on the value chain. And that's very useful, of course. 
And this also happened even during the pandemic. We continued uh, ferrying this, and this was very important. First of all, for the farmers here to be able to sell their produce, and then also for the consumers uh, in Europe, because they were running out of stocks. That's amazing that even during COVID, that that's what really helped uh, both Kenyan individual farmers and Kenya Airways. Uh, Dr. Roma, transport is not just about goods, but it's also about moving people. And a big part of the Continental Free Trade Agreement is about moving people throughout the continent. How is infrastructure changing the ability for people to move throughout the continent? And how will that change Africa as far as economically? Uh, some of us believe that the reason Africa is where it is today is because it's a fragmented continent of 55 countries. And the countries uh, since uh, colonialism came, when we are not allowed to deal with themselves. Uh, so the infrastructure we have today that moves people was organized to serve a market that is not an African market. In each country, that was the way it was. And that included even the airlines. We supported virtually all the major airlines in the continent, providing them complete financing uh, to enable them move people, especially within the continent. Because it's when people move around that other things that hold back in traditional trade will begin to collapse. Alan, Kenya Airways is a national carrier, and there's often been a debate about whether countries have to have their own carrier, uh, or whether that's important. And yet I remember for a long time, to just go from one country to a neighboring country, you had to fly through Europe. And certainly, national carriers have changed that. How important do you think it is for the whole infrastructure uh, um, the solutions to have a national carrier for each country. Yeah, yeah that is actually quite a, an interesting and probably a controversial discussion. We have 54 countries in Africa. So should each and every country have a national carrier? My answer, the answer is probably no, because then they, we don't have economies of scale to fly because we transport about 150 million people every year. That's a fraction of what uh, happens in Europe and, and in the US and in, and in Asia for that matter. But now the reason why it's important to have a local solution, whether it is a consolidation of airlines or some sort of a solution that's local is because we have to interconnect Africa. Uh, they have to be uh, intra-Africa uh, movement of people, uh, very importantly. Especially now when you're talking about a free trade area where people have to move and do business and discuss. So, so there's opportunity for us to continue investing in airports, in the airline, and encouraging people to fly. Hey, Juliet, Professor Aroma has talked about the importance of rail and rivers and, and all of the different ways of moving goods and people. I know that you've seen this in your work, and I wonder if you could just paint a picture for us of how much this really changes the lives of people when those connections are made. Yeah, thanks, Carol. I mean, that's an excellent one, and the one that I like to talk about 24 hours every day. <laughs> So we have a seller who's based in maybe Lagos in Nigeria. And because of a platform where he can list his products and those products are visible to every consumer who visits a Jumia platform, he can sell to a consumer in Midugri, which is about more than 2,000 kilometers away. 
And he's never met the person before, of course. He uh, would never have transacted with the person in his life if that platform had not existed. So that's your bridge analogy of what a platform does. Now, when you relate it to the interconnectedness in Africa, I would really love to see infrastructure projects that are thinking of Africa as a single entity. And therefore, there's a road network that is thinking about connecting all the key commercial centers in Africa through road, through rail, through, through uh, marine transportation. And then, of course, there's funding that then backs it up because someone has thought through it from an inter-African perspective. These are things that will then begin to have a direct impact on poverty rates, creating opportunities for the largely young populace that we have. So that's the way we're going to create those opportunities because people are moving and goods are moving, information is moving, creating opportunities in multiple dimensions. Dr. Roma, major corporations have always been able to get their goods out of Africa. They've even created their own infrastructure if needed. But small and medium enterprises is where a lot of jobs are created. How much attention is being paid or needs to be paid to the feeder infrastructure that is now creating opportunities for these small and medium enterprises? That is something that, uh, that doesn't need any debate. You know, the rural roads and feeder infrastructure are critical to fostering the regional supply chains we are talking about. There's a project we are developing today. There is a rich iron ore field in Guinness, the largest deposit of high-grade iron ore. But today it's not being mined because to do that, you have to build a railway all the way to Conakry. That will cost four or so billion dollars. Whereas if you build a railway from that place to the port of Buchanan in Liberia, it will cost less than $2 billion. So it is the AFCFT that will make this project possible. We are working on it. We are making faster progress towards getting it off the ground. It's really interesting. You've just made the case for why we shouldn't be thinking about borders. We shouldn't be thinking about capitals, but rather as an entire entity of the continent and how to move around it. Alan, for the future 10 years, 20 years, 50 years from now, how will Africa look different if we have the transportation infrastructure that we're talking about here? So many things, right? Interconnectivity. It's a huge continent, 1.3 billion people. At that time, probably will be over 2.5 billion people interconnected. And the trade will move from currently 16% of intra-Africa trade to over 60%, therefore employing uh, all of our youth or people, because right now the unemployment rate is, is quite high. Uh, we will have centers of excellence across Africa. Uh, we will be a dominant force in the world of trade uh, and of culture. And so for me, the future is very bright. We need to take the right actions now quickly to really expand and grow. That's an amazing vision. Thank you. Professor Aroma, if I can finish with you, if the infrastructure is gotten right, the transport infrastructure, how will that change the face of Africa? I said, 60 years ago, or thereabouts, our forefathers fought epic battles to achieve 
political independence for our different countries. They knew that what they were fighting for was just the beginning of the long journey. Ever since then, there has been a lot of sloganeering rather than actually moving to fight the final real epic battle to achieve economic independence. That battle has fallen on our generation. So if we have an interconnected continent, I will tell you then, hallelujah, we have arrived. Thank you so much, Professor Aroma. Juliette Anama, Chairwoman at Jumia Nigeria and Head of Institutional Affairs at Jumia Group. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Alan Kilavuka, CEO of Kenya Airways. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. And Professor Benedicta Roma, President of the African Export-Import Bank. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much. And thanks to my co-host Carol Pino for conducting that round table. That will do it for this episode of Africa Forward. I'm Aisha Sasei. Our program was produced by Carol Pino along with Africa 50 and FP Studios. Special thanks to our reporter Laura Rosbrow Tellum. Africa Forward is a podcast of Africa 50, produced by Carol Pino and FP Studios. All opinions and views in this podcast do not necessarily reflect that of Africa 50 or FP Studios. For more information on Africa 50, please check out Africa and then the numbers 50.com. And for more on FP Studios, you can head to foreignpolicy.com and click on podcasts. Thanks for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Acast.com.